0: Welcome back to the Wealthy, Worthy and Wild podcast. I'm your host Amy Talliferd from rebelnutrition.com and I'm so excited to welcome our guest Sierra Dorham, to the show today. So Sierra is a functional nutritional therapy practitioner and black woman based in Houston, Texas. She helps women with perfectionist tendencies to build and maintain habits that promote a healthy lifestyle rather than live on the endless on the wagon off the wagon cycle. So Sierra Thank you so much for being here. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to get to talk to you. I've been a
1: student of yours and following your work for a while, so I'm looking forward to our conversation.
0: Yay! Well, I'm so excited to get into it, but before we deep dive into everything that we're going to talk about today, because it's a lot, um, something that I ask the most guests that come on the podcast is, what is something that you are obsessed with right now? I'm obsessed with houseplants. With house plants. Yes. I'm 35. I don't have any kids.
1: I don't have any pets. I've been on self-quarantine since March 11th. So I had to get some kids. So I got a lot of plants. Every time my husband goes to the grocery store, he brings me back one or
0: two plants. (laughs) Oh my God. I love that. That is so cute. Tell me which plants are the easiest to take care of because I am notorious for killing them is the easiest. Just water it whenever you think
1: about it. It doesn't matter if you give it a lot of water or a little water. It doesn't care about how much light or how little light. It just
0: keeps growing and thriving. That's amazing. Okay, that's next up on my list because I really am still trying to manifest a puppy, but I just don't think it's in my near future, so I better get some plants instead. (laughs) (laughs) Just give them names that sound like dogs. Okay, perfect. (laughs) Okay, so just a little bit of background for everybody that's here. So Sierra and I are both obviously NTPs, and we are both in a NTP Facebook group. And the topic of anti-racism and just everything that's kind of going on in the world right now came up. And the question of you know how to make our businesses more diverse as NTPs came up. And I saw Sierra's response, which was kind of touching on the historical perspective of systemic racism. And I just thought it was a really really interesting perspective that I wanted to dive deeper into. And I just knew that after I saw your response that I wanted you to come on and talk about that. Because I'm sure as many people who are listening to this have noticed or experienced themselves that the nutrition and wellness world is very white. I mean, I don't know how else to explain it other than it's just not very diverse. And so I kind of wanted to ask you first, kind of what your experience was like going through the nta as a black woman not to you know say anything badly about nta but just going through that experience what was it like for you well first at the
1: time the ntp program was in person and the ntc program was online exclusively and i remember thinking about how white the wellness space is and deciding like, am I going to go and do this program where we have to meet in person? And I'm probably going to be the only black person or one of a couple and have to deal with that regardless of, you know, what the experience is, or am I going to do it online? And I decided to do the workshop anyway. And it was fine. Like I was the only black person, like the absolute only one in my class. The NTA as an organization is very inclusive. Like there was never a moment where I felt uh, outside of the group because I was black.
0: That's definitely good to hear. And I know that they've made some public statements about like how they're doing better to kind of incorporate that sort of teaching in their programs from here on out. So I think that that's really good to hear. I mean, it just kind of solidifies how I feel about the NTA that that was your experience. So that's good to know. So I guess let's get into just the topic of systemic racism, because that's kind of what I wanted to structure this conversation around. Um, so can you explain kind of what that is for anybody who doesn't know, and just how also it has kind of prevented Black communities from accumulating wealth and maybe even getting into the wellness space, if that makes sense? Sure. So. Systemic
1: racism, which is also sometimes called institutional racism, is basically laws and practices that have been in place in our country to intentionally oppress Black people. And so I want to start by kind of just thinking through the timeline of Black people in America and how we got to where we are here today. So slavery happened for over 400 years. For over 400 years, Black people were legally three-fifths of a person, as defined by the government. And then in 1863, after the Emancipation Proclamation freed slaves, there were a couple of years before that message actually reached parts of the South. So June 19th, 1865 is when that message actually reached Texas and we have a big celebration every year um, on June 19th, honoring that day. But anyway, after slaves were free, there were immediately laws put in place to keep Black people from becoming equal. And they were called Black Codes. Some of them right after slavery mandated that Black people had to perform jobs in which they were a labor force. And one method that was used to ensure that was that, If black people took jobs where they weren't farmers or servants, they would have to pay extra taxes at the end of the year because they weren't working in the sectors that they were wanted to be worked in, like from the government. So 1870, the 15th Amendment gave black people the right to vote, but at the same time, lots of places invoked poll taxes. So you would have to pay a fee to be able to vote. So a lot of Black people, especially lower-income Black people, were blocked out of voting. Uh, finally, in 1954, segregation ended in schools, and then we saw in 1964 was the legal end of segregation, um, as we knew it, where there were you know, water fountains, bathrooms, movie theaters that were just for white or Black people. We finally started to see the legal integration of those. The way that this has contributed to how Black people have accumulated wealth or been blocked from accumulating wealth is there was a period of time in the 1930s under Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal where the federal homeowner's loan corporation, they would take a neighborhood map and color code the map according to how desirable it was to give loans to specific neighborhoods. So the Black neighborhoods were marked in red as being hazardous to give loans to. So in those areas, lots of people didn't qualify to get loans, so they were unable to buy homes. And we know that in the United States, owning a home is one of the number one ways to achieve wealth. You know, you own your home and then you keep your home, you pass your home down to your family and then there's more wealth within your family. Those people are able to buy homes and so forth. So Black people weren't able to buy homes in the same way that white people were. So between 1934 and 1968, 98% of home loans were given to white families. What we see now is the ramifications of these types of practices being legal for so long. And that's contributed to Black people not having the wealth that white people have.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting. I'm not sure if you saw that. um, I think it was like an IGTV of kind of a illustration of basically systemic racism, what you just described of like, how like where the black communities are and the white communities and then the amount of property taxes and how that goes to fund like the schools. And that's why like a white child is, you know, a couple streets over from where the black child goes to school, but they have completely different experiences because the property taxes from the white neighborhood are funding the white school. And then the ones from, so that was just so eye opening to me. And I will see if I can link to that in the show notes for you guys to check out, because it's really interesting to see it kind of illustrated. And it's also very shareable if that's something that you want to share on your Instagram. So thank you for sharing that. Can you talk about some of the other ways that systemic racism has affected Black people in America in terms of education and the wealth gap and all Mm -hmm. of the other types of things like that? Yeah, well, the wealth
1: gap, in addition to the redlining, which now is illegal, but it's not really monitored. So, if that's something else, if you look into, is redlining still happen today? Happening today? Um, there's definitely some evidence that it is. But black families are also earning less money than white families for every. that white families earn, black families are earning $57.30. And so in addition to just previously accumulated wealth or wealth that's in the family, black people are earning less. Black women, there was a study done recently that showed that black women are the most educated group in America at this moment. But a Black woman is earning $0.64 cents for every dollar that, that a white man earns. And even with Black people with advanced degrees, Black people are paid $0.82 cents for every dollar that a white person is. So we're talking about, you know, very highly
0: educated people still not making the same types of money. Why do you think that is? Do you think it all stems back to, like, implicit bias? I think so. Yeah, yeah. because you know, there's a Harvard
1: implicit bias project. I'll send it to you if you want to link it as well. And this bias test kind of like puts you in different scenarios and exposes what your biases are. I, as a black woman, took this test and it said that I am slightly biased towards white people as a black woman who grew up mostly in a white area. So implicit bias is very real. I think that a lot of times we may make a judgment about someone that just based on their appearance, based on um, maybe something we saw in the news or based on one past experience. And so something that's really exciting to me is seeing so many people doing work around trying to become actively anti-racist and really learning how to recognize those biases within themselves.
0: Yeah. Would you mind, just in case people are unfamiliar with the term, can you just explain what implicit bias is? Yeah. It's
1: like a bias that you hold for or against someone that you're not even really aware of. And you may say or do things that show a bias. And like, you really don't even think about it.
0: Yeah. And I think that a really good example is for anybody who maybe right now is feeling defensive and saying, you know, well, I'm not racist. I don't personally own slaves or whatever. That's kind of more explicit. Like, okay, you aren't consciously doing anything racist, but there are a lot of implicit biases that we hold that we don't even realize that we have. Um, and it can right. be due to just the environment you grew up in, you know, what your family structure was like, the things that you were watching on TV. So I think, yeah, definitely send me that test. Cause then I can link it in the, in the show notes, but I think it's, so just interesting to unpack a lot of these things that we hold kind of deep in our subconscious mind that we maybe even didn't even know that we had until we started looking into this. Right. And it just goes to
1: show like how systemic racism is. Like it is so ingrained in our system in America that sometimes I think when people hear people speak out about racism, they feel like they're speaking out against America.
0: Mm -hmm. You know, that's not what it is. But the two are just so intertwined. Definitely. I mean, can you think of other examples for people? I think examples are so helpful. Because again, if you are new to this work, which I definitely am, it can be kind of Sometimes difficult to pinpoint, or maybe you know our ego blocks us from wanting to think that we've ever done anything to contribute to this racism. But the truth is that most of us, as white people, have. Um, can you think of any other like examples of implicit bias? Yeah, um,
1: just the other day, my husband had gone to the grocery store, and we were talking about how usually if you're in the express line at the grocery store, like the fifteen items or less line, if someone has I don't know, 35 items or whatever, the cashier who's there may or may not say to them, oh, excuse me, would you please go to another line, right? We've noticed in a store that we go to that if someone's in that line and they are Black, the cashier will say something to them. But if they are Asian or white or Hispanic, the cashier may not say anything to them. And so like, we've seen things like that a few times. It's, you know, recognize them to yourself, like, oh, I wonder, why did I say something to this black man? But why did I not say something to this white woman?
0: Yeah, that's really good. I think too, you also had sent me a article about bias in like the medical field, which Mm -hmm. I thought was so fascinating. So I would love to dive into that because basically the article was saying that black people in general and other people of color, they're much less likely to get appropriate medical care due to implicit bias from the healthcare provider who might not, you know, treat them the same way as they would a white patient. So Can you talk a little bit about like how that works or if you know any like statistics that you can bring up or like how Black people are less likely to get the appropriate care?
1: Yeah, um, Black women are four times more likely to die from a pregnancy-related cause. So whether that's in childbirth or, you know, in those weeks right after childbirth, a Black woman is four times more likely to die. And some of the research that I've read around that is about doctors not listening to Black women when they're explaining pain and basically not trusting that they understand the pain that they're experiencing in their body. So if a Black woman says to her doctor, I'm feeling pain on a scale of one to 10, that's a nine then the doctor is less likely to prescribe pain medicine than if a white woman says that she feels pain, that's a nine. And it's really sad that we're seeing things like infant mortality rates being higher. Infant mortality for black infants is two and a half times what it is for white infants. And I really do think that a lot of it boils down to doctors just not listening.
0: Yeah, I wonder if this again, goes back to just their own biases against, you know, the color of the skin of their patient. Do you think that in order to improve this, not that you know the answer to this, I'm just curious what your thoughts are, if like, it's as simple as having more training in like the wellness field, whether that's like a medical doctor or a nutritionist, having more training about biases, or do you think that there's like some other type of training that needs to be enacted for medical professionals?
1: I do think that there has to be intentional training about biases. And as individuals, people have to look inside themselves and be willing to kind of be uncomfortable because these conversations are uncomfortable. You know, I've talked with white friends who would like to think that they're not racist or that they've never said anything or done anything that may be offensive, but most have. And so, you know, like you mentioned earlier, losing the ego and being willing to get uncomfortable and say like, okay, I recognize I do have this bias. And um, I think that requires both training from medical institutions, for example, but also people as individuals taking that personal responsibility and looking to do that education for themselves as well.
0: Yeah, 100%. I think taking personal responsibility and just not expecting that, you know, somebody else needs to lead this movement, like, it needs to be you, it needs to be every single one of us. And I I saw this, it was like a meme or something. And it said, racism is like COVID-19, assume that you have it. I don't know if you saw that, yes. but like, assume that you have it. And then Take necessary precautions. And especially if you're the type of person who feels very uncomfortable being asked the question, like, Have you ever done anything racist in your life? And you immediately tense up and think, No, absolutely not. I would never do that. I think, again, just being okay with feeling uncomfortable and just really trying to have a little bit of patience with yourself because I think we have all, I mean, all white people have been guilty of it to some extent and just trying to figure out where that is, that's how things are going to change. I agree. Okay, quick break from this episode to tell you guys about a new free training that I'm hosting because I don't know if you guys noticed, but basically the world went online overnight, right? So this new masterclass is all about how to turn your passion into an online business. So even though a lot of my content has really been geared towards nutritionists and wellness professionals, The content that I'm gonna be sharing inside this masterclass is really going to apply to anybody. So I'm gonna be teaching the exact method that took me from absolutely zero, just starting my business, no budget, to full-time traveling nutritionist in only six months. So if you are at the beginning stages of your business and you want to go full-time as soon as possible, you wanna get out of your nine-to-five job, whether you're a nutritionist or not, You're going to love this masterclass. So to sign up, all you have to do is text the word digital nomad, no spaces, to the number 44222. Again, that's texting the word digital nomad, one word, no spaces, to 44222. And you guys, in this free training, I'm also gonna be sharing how to stand out online, even if you're in an oversaturated niche like health and wellness. And this is totally for you, even if you don't have credentials or a certification yet. Don't let imposter syndrome get in the way. I'm also going to be sharing which social media platform I recommend to grow your business the quickest online. And little hint, it's actually not Instagram. And finally, I'm gonna be sharing all about why automation is the key to hitting your financial goals because you guys know I'm all about working smarter and not harder. So again, text the word digital nomad, one word, no spaces, to the number 44222 and you'll immediately be sent the link to sign up for the next available masterclass. I'm so excited and I will see you guys there. Okay, back to the episode. Okay, so let's also dive into more around like the nutrition side of things. So can you explain what a food desert is? So, those areas that I was
1: talking about earlier that were redlined, those um, hazardous areas that mostly Black people and lower income people lived in, as time has passed, those have also become areas where there are not as many grocery stores. So, the USDA defines a food desert as a neighborhood where at least 20% of the population lives in poverty. And at least 33% of the population live more than a mile away from a grocery store. And if we're talking about a rural area, more than 10 miles away from a grocery store. So these are areas where there may be, you know, tons of little convenience stores, gas stations, things like that, but nowhere that people can go and buy fresh food. Or in some areas, like if they do have fresh food, the fresh food is more expensive than it would be in other areas. So there are areas that are food deserts. And then there's also areas, uh, I've heard the term food swamps. So a food swamp has a disproportionate number of fast food and convenience stores compared to grocery stores. So maybe there's a grocery store or two in the neighborhood, but on your way to the grocery store, you pass seven fast food places, and three corner stores. And the the problem with this is that Black people and lower income people living in these areas also are not having the same access to good medical care that other people are having due to medical organizations being able to choose which insurance they accept in which insurance they don't, that's a form of discrimination right there. And then going to the doctor and the doctor not listening to you. And also, let me just point out, I am making some like broad sweeping generalizations, of course, like there are some good doctors who serve low income people. But black people are dying 70% of the time from a Food related disease. And I think it's easy for someone to say, oh, well, these are personal decisions. Like we know that diabetes is a lifestyle disease. These are personal decisions, and someone choosing to eat sugary food or a high carb or high fat diet all the time. And that's just not the case because if you don't have access to fresh food, Then what else are you gonna do? Or if you live in an area where the fresh food is more expensive than the packaged food and you are trying to feed your family on a low income, you're gonna choose poor quality food if it's less expensive.
0: Yeah, and I think that totally this whole conversation comes full circle to where we started of saying that like the wellness industry as a whole is very white and it's almost like it's a privilege of being white that we don't, a lot of times don't even consider the fact that, you know, the places where we've grown up. And again, like this is a generalization, but most people where they've grown up, they have the access to, you know, healthy, fresh food. So that definitely makes sense to why it's like that. But then I guess my question then is what can white folks, specifically those who are in, you know, the nutrition, health coaching, wellness world, like What can we do to create more inclusive businesses or support people of color who are struggling in this area or don't have access to this information or they're in a food desert? Like, what can we do?
1: I think first, like,
0: recognizing
1: that these places exist. There are local charities, if you look at uh, work that's being done around helping people get more access to food. The organizations that are really doing this work are local. Um, I was kind of searching on the internet everywhere, trying to see if I could find one kind of overarching organization that I could suggest that people support, but that's not the case. So if you are in a major city or even in a rural area, look and see If you can find somewhere that uh, a business that you can support or a charity that you can support, there are like farmer's markets that are intentionally going and having a little farmer's market in an urban inner city area that's a food desert from time to time. Um, There are places that you can donate to that are donating food to children that is specifically produce. Because a lot of times, people who are getting some assistance with food are receiving non-perishable goods. It's not like healthy, high-quality, fresh food. So that's something that you can do that kind of has an immediate impact. But I think we have to recognize that this is a long-term commitment that's needed to helping to make the wellness space more diverse. This is not going to happen overnight just like as passionate as we all may be feeling right now in this moment we're not going to see an overnight change of systemic racism being gone in America so just recognize that this isn't going to take a while but with your black clients really listen to them because i can tell you i have some black female clients that are not used to Having a professional really listen to what they're saying, because when they go to the doctor, unfortunately, in those seven minutes, they're not being heard out. So really listen to them, what they're saying. And don't assume that the same stores even means that you have the same access. Uh, I had a client who was living in San Antonio, Texas, and in a fluid area. And she was able to buy a lot of the things that I would recommend to her at Target. And for one reason or another, she had to move to another city. And the area that she moved to is a food desert. She moved to be near some family. And she went to Target and they did not have a lot of the same items that she had been buying. So, you know, really asking questions, not making assumptions. I think that that's always the best thing to do with any client, but especially consider that with
0: your black clients. That's a really good point. And another question that I had come up while you were talking to is for white nutritionists and health coaches who maybe are listening to this and thinking to themselves, like, I've never had a black client or I've never had a client who was a person of color and that wants to reach those people. Like, I, I feel like this is a question probably people have, but then maybe don't feel like they know who to ask. Does that make sense? Like they're probably wanting to know how to diversify and like reach more people, but they Mm -hmm. don't know how to do that. Do you have any input or do you think it's as simple as like starting to build a more diverse business in, you know, the people that you listen to and the people that you bring on your platform and things like that? That's a really good question. I think that some of it is just being intentional about diversifying
1: your business and the people that you build community with, but also something to think about very practically is not always aiming for nutritional perfection. So, you know, in the NTA, one of the things that we learn about is transitional food and taking a client from a standard American diet into one that incorporates more real whole foods. And for me, I can say that when I first started getting into wellness, something that really overwhelmed me was every time I would look at a blog post that someone had written, they would be suggesting this idea of like, I can't describe it as anything else, except for like nutritional perfection, like, everything is grass fed, pasture raised, Everything is completely organic, locally grown. And if you're not doing it that way, you're doing it wrong. Well, I mean, as much as I myself would like to achieve that level of nutrition perfection, that is not reality for a lot of people. Like, that's not reality for me within my budget now. And I'm in an okay place, you know? So, If you are really wanting to reach a more diverse community, I'm not saying like, don't tell people that they should eat organic or pastured or whatever, but also make it very clear in what you are putting out there to people that eating
0: broccoli that is conventional is better than eating a bag of chips. That's a really good point. Yeah, I totally Totally see what you're saying there. And then another question that I have too, because again, this is maybe more of a question that I personally have, but I have heard kind of conflicting advice on it because just me personally in my business, I'm doing a lot of learning right now about ways that I can make my business more diverse and inclusive. And something that I've thought about is scholarships, but I've heard mixed input on this from some people. And these are from people who are reaching out to me in my audience who are black. And a couple of people were saying that preferential treatment is also a form of racism. So I was wondering if you had thoughts on that, if you agree with that, or if you disagree with that, because I have heard both things. And then some people were saying, no, this is a really good way to diversify your audience.
1: Hmm.
0: I can see both sides.
1: And for myself, like, I personally think that if a person or a small business is able to offer scholarships that are specifically for Black people or other people of color, and they're given in a way where the person that they're awarding the scholarship to is like qualified to have it, then I think that's okay. It's kind of like if Two people apply for the same college, and one is Black and one is white, and the Black one has just as high SAT scores, is just as involved in their community. You know, if the qualifications are the same, then I understand giving that scholarship. So I think, you know, for small business owners, if you feel inclined to give a scholarship, to a Black person or a person of color specifically, then I think it's fine. Don't just give somebody something because they're Black, though, you know?
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. I hope that was okay to ask. I know that probably if I have these questions that other people are thinking them too, so I thought I would just ask you. And I think kind of the way that I'm going to do it moving forward, because scholarships are something that I usually do whenever I'm launching a new course, like I will do Mm -hmm. a giveaway or a scholarship for one person. Um, What I think I'm just going to do from here on out is maybe just do two of them. And just making sure that it's kind of 50 50, like everybody who applies, I mean, there's not really any requirement. It's just like, whoever applies, but choosing maybe like 50% of the people that I give it to are a person of color. Yeah. So Yeah. Thank you for answering that. Um, (laughs) A couple other questions that I wanted to ask you about before we wrap this up. I've been hearing from other people, um, other white people, as it relates to speaking up, especially on like social media, especially if they're a business owner and they're, you know, feeling like I'm not racist, but now I feel like if I don't say anything, it makes me look racist. So do I have to say something, even though now it feels like I'm only saying something because it's a trend? What do you think about that? You know, it's really a fine line.
1: Like, I don't want to say you should post because I don't think that anyone should be Shamed into voicing how they feel. But, you know, racism is not a political issue. It's a human rights issue. And to me, if you have a business, your business should have very well defined values. And if part of your company's values is that all people are equal, I don't think that you should have a problem speaking up. But I also don't think that people should speak up just because they feel like they have to. Like that's being performative Mm -hmm. and that's not really helpful. I can say for larger businesses, I have like kind of been lurking on social media and looking to see if they said anything. Just because if you, you know, if you are a big company with black employees and black patrons, You have a certain responsibility, but as a small business, like a health coaching business, something like that, I don't think that you have to say something. But if you haven't reached out to a Black client just to say like, hey, how are you doing, like with sincerity, or if you haven't started doing some of the work internally yourself, then I just think you should check your heart. I don't think that anyone could sit and watch what is happening in our country and not have some type of response to it. But that response may not necessarily be something that is shared online. But complete silence is just
0: accepting
1: things the way that they are. And that is problematic.
0: Absolutely. Well, and I think too, a good question is if you're feeling that way right now, Just ask yourself why. Like, do you want to say something and you want to speak up, but it's really fear of what people think that is preventing you from not speaking out or fear of, you know, losing followers? I mean, I think these are really important questions to be asking ourselves if you feel unable to speak your truth. And I also think that I really respect people who have taken a stand initially, and maybe they didn't say it in the perfect way. But you can tell when it's coming from an authentic place. And it's coming from somebody's heart that this is how they feel. And more importantly, like if they're showing the ways that they are taking action moving forward, past, you know, just posting one black square or something like that. Something that you and I had talked about a little
1: before recording was tone policing. Like, during this time, I think people are starting to have conversations that they've never had. Like, I can tell you, I, as a Black woman, have talked about racism with my Black friends and with my Mexican best friends, but this is not a conversation that I have had with white friends or with white people in general very much, like prior to the past two weeks. And so I think white people may hear things sometimes like delivered with such passion and be offended by the way in which it was delivered even though what the black person said was true. And I just want to encourage people to not do that because that itself is rooted in white supremacy. Because if you really believe that people are equal, then you would believe that their feelings are equal. And what you hear in what sounds like anger is passion and anger about this oppression that has been happening in this country since our country was founded. Earlier this week, I heard someone say, if you are a woman and your husband is abusing you, when you cry out for help, You can't say, "Um, excuse me, someone, please help me. This man is hitting me. Like, that's not how it sounds. And so, if you hear something that makes you feel like, wow, that person is being so aggressive, which is a label that is put on Black people often, that person is being so angry. Like, I wish they would just calm down. Like, you can't tell. A victim to not cry out. And so I just thought that that illustration with someone saying, a battered woman, think about a battered woman crying out for help, really painted that picture for me. Like, okay, this is how you explain this. Because I think very often Black women who aren't as vocal, like me in my everyday life, I'm pretty like chill, low key will kind of go with the flow and have been like the nice black girl to not be the angry black woman, Mm. you know, because of the way that people receive tone. So I think that's something that is important as well.
0: Absolutely. I think that's such a good point. Or if you've ever said this yourself or thought to yourself, like, well, if they just calm down a little bit, then like their message would be more effective. Like you want them to sort of water it down to like get on your level. That is also a form of white supremacy. A book that I'm currently reading that talks about this, and it's really, really good is Me and White Supremacy. So I will also link to that in the show notes. And the most powerful example that I got when I was reading this book, because I've always been somebody who loved watching tennis, women's tennis, specifically, she talks about the example of Serena Williams and how she is often called out for being really angry on court and, you know, things that she's done. I think she said something like, you're a thief to the ref about one of the shots. And she got fined, she got in so much trouble. And then A white male player who is also known for like his antics on the court. I can't remember his name. Oh, I think it was John McEnroe. He actually spoke up and was like, I have said way worse things before and I've never gotten in trouble. I've never gotten fined. And so I just thought that was a really good example of like tone policing her specifically. I mean, that's like a really public example, but. And for him, you know, that's a really good example of someone using their privilege for
1: good because. I think for us to see lasting change, it's going to take white people using their place of privilege to bring light to unjust situations.
0: I completely agree. It's so important to, I mean, we're talking about like a minority group and a majority with white being the majority. The minority are going to have a lot more power if people in the majority are being their ally and speaking up for them and taking a stand. And that's why I personally think it is so important to speak out no matter what size platform you have and, you know, do the work. I mean, not just speak out, that's part of it, but also do the work both online and offline in your business, in your life. I think that's just really powerful and what needs to happen if we really want to make a lasting change. Well, that is all of my questions, unless there was anything else that you wanted to talk about. Anything else? No, I'm just really glad to get to have this conversation with you today. Me too. I appreciate you so much for coming on here. And I just want to throw it out there that like, I'm obviously still learning about this. And I really appreciate you for taking my questions, some of which I didn't know if, if I phrased in the totally politically correct way. But I think it's important to just have these conversations and do the work. And I just appreciate you so much. So can you tell people where they can go to connect with you and follow you on Instagram and go to your website and work with you? Sure. You can find
1: me on Instagram at better everyday health. And my website is be fitness and health.com
0: perfect. And I will link to all of Sierra's info in the show notes. And you guys, as always, if this episode was helpful to you, if you loved it, please take a screenshot and share it on your Instagram stories and make sure to tag Sierra at better everyday health and me at rebel nutrition. Again, thank you so much for listening and I'll be back soon. Bye.